Several years ago, at the end of December, my mom called with absolute delight in her voice, and she said, you just won't believe it. I got to be a Chris in the Christmas pageant, they didn't have enough kids, so I got to be a shepherd. <laughs> now, my mom is about this tall, and she's got this lovely white hair that frames her face, and I can only imagine that she perfectly fit into one of those child-sized robes, and she would have been every pageant director's dream for the way in which her calm, grandmotherly presence was placed right next to very anxious Mary and Joseph's. Christmas pageants are cast with those we love, costumed in these lovely robes that we tuck away from year to year because they're so precious. They're staged in warm sanctuaries that have polished to holiday clean. Enacting Jesus' birth narrative in this way, though, whitewashes the writer Luke's intention of shocking us with Jesus' impoverished origins and the very subversive message that's steeped throughout his gospel. Written after the fall of Jerusalem's temple and at the end of the first century, the Gospel of Luke describes how Jesus, how God turned the world upside down. And he writes this Gospel for those that are trying to make sense of how everything has begun to unravel of politics, religion, economics, and how did this happen that in just a few short years there's this gospel of love that's spreading like wildfire. In Luke's gospel, God acts through the least probable people. An elderly couple without pedigree, Zachariah and Elizabeth, bear a son, John the Baptist. Mary and Joseph are from this miserable town of Nazareth that seems to be filled with the equivalent of Section 8 housing and they're sent to register their heritage in a town of even less significance, Bethlehem. Forget what you think you know about this lovely holiday story read on Christmas Eve, and listen with fresh ears of the next group of people that no one would have expected to be there. Before I read our Holy Scripture, please pray with me. Dear God, we come before your holy word thinking that we might know what you're saying, but silence in us any voice but yours so that we might be startled by your truth. Fill this air with your Holy Spirit and bless our meditations so that we are transformed as people have been throughout the ages who've received your upending good news. We offer this name in the Christ child's name. Amen. In that region, there were shepherds living in the field, keeping over watch of their flock at night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord showed around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find the child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in highest heavens and on earth peace among those whom God favors. When the angels had left them and gone to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing which has taken place, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in the manger. When they saw this, they may had made known to them what they had been told about the child. And all who heard it were amazed. 
But Mary treasured all these words and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and told. Here ends our reading. Simple gestures can communicate powerfully. Now that's a throwaway line to introduce to you a series that I'll be take, we'll go through. An infant's smile can send a grandparent to the moon. A preschooler's spontaneous kiss or the wave of their hand as they walk into school can just warm your heart. In the matter of seconds, small actions create these loving connections. But as kids grow older, and certainly then into puberty, small movements they learn can divide. Sometimes a teen can deftly tell you that your ideas are stupid, they think you should just shut up and get lost by the way in which they learn to roll their eyes. And then as an adult, to be on the receiving end of an adult's eye roll is to experience viscerally someone else's disdain, to be condescended to, to be told that you're boring, frustrating, or simply beyond any words. You can find a lot of social media posts these days, including this passive-aggressive um, flicker, and they do so with a wide array of different GIFs. A GIF is a short animation clipped from videos, and the most common GIFs that you will find are clipped from presidential candidates during debates, news commentators arguing policy, or you find a lot of GIFs of Judge Judy. Almost a reflex, this one brief action arouses intense response for both the target, and when someone rolls their eyes at you, you don't forget it. This, other, this brief action also for the person whose eyes have rolled senses their relief that they don't have to waste a breath by saying what they don't even think is worthy. The writer of Luke's Gospels knew that those who would have heard this message would have rolled their eyes at the mere mention of a shepherd. A shepherd. Now, the stories of King David celebrate a young boy rising from a hill country shepherd to become the greatest king of all. It's charming folklore of a primitive society in which there were no hierarchies of labor or people. Everybody was just at the poverty level. That's how it was. At that time, shepherds were okay, and besides, this is the ultimate rags-to-riches story. But society's progressed a great deal since King David, and the refined city dwellers of first century Palestine, the mention of shepherds would have provoked far more than an eye roll. Jewish writings preserved at the time, and I've sanitized them for politeness to the pulpit, they would advise, I quote, a man should not teach his son to be a donkey driver, a camel driver, a sailor, or ever a herdsman, for theirs is the trade of thieves. No one aspired to be a shepherd. One fell into this job. A shepherd was considered a thug, a brigand. A shepherd smelled of manure, and they just reeked of shame. Shepherds were not welcome inside the city walls. Shepherds could not be trusted. And it's to this lowest of the low, those deserving nothing but contempt, Luke tells us angels appear. We learn that shepherds arrive at the cradle before anyone else, and they witness love incarnate. They turn their lives to glorify God, and they become the first messengers. And without them, who knows how people would have learned. 
Those who heard Luke's gospel might not have been phased at the idea of a virgin's birth, but they would have stopped in their tracks to know that God chose the very last people anyone would trust a shepherd. And in hearing that, their contempt just fades. Those that are most excluded are the first ones welcomed in. We need to hear this story of what I will call Shepherds First every year as an in-our-face reminder of God's presence with and God's preference for those we have deemed worthless. Given the polarized partisan climate this year, the story seems particularly necessary. Arthur Brooks, who's formerly the president of the American Enterprise Institute and is now a professor at Harvard, is an economist by training and he can study vast quantities of mind-numbing data of economic trends, attitudes, and policies to distill for us present-day truths in common language. He spotlights research that confirms the average Republican and the average Democrat suffer the same assumption that their ideology is based in love and the opposing side just lives in hate. He cites that it's comparable to the divisions between the Palestinians and the Israelis. Each side thinks the other is evil and therefore an enemy with whom one cannot negotiate or compromise. To bring this home, literally, Brooks refers to what good marriage counselors know. The leading indicator of divorce is not anger or disagreement amongst spouses. Those are actually quite healthy emotions that can lead to positive growth. Instead, the highest propensity to divorce occurs when contempt for the other surfaces. Contempt is defined as, I quote, the unsullied conviction of the worthlessness of the other. This tolerance for contempt is dividing dinner tables, families, and it's inciting hateful actions from which there will never be, from which there will always be lasting damage. We see contempt embodied with eye rolls when watching the national news, and when we continue to consume our preferred brand of news, that only cements further our convictions that the other side is unredeemable. It seems like we're headed to divorce, and yet our nation cannot be divided with one party simply moving out. As radical as it sounds, coming from Cambridge, Massachusetts, or Washington, D.C., Brooks argues the way out of this mess is to find our common ground through understanding, good humor, and most of all, through love. This is a Roman Catholic who often quotes Augustine that love is the path to, to freedom. He also cites it will take a great deal of courage. Brooks recalls a lesson his father taught him. Moral courage is not standing up to people with whom you disagree. Moral courage instead comes from standing up to people with whom you agree on behalf of those you disagree. Somehow we need to open our eyes rather than roll them, to see the other as a human first. We need to open our hearts to love before we open our mouths to hate. We need to see the other not as evil, but just as a person trying to raise children, save for retirement, and care for their sick. See the other person as God sees them and then muster the courage to speak with respect for human dignity. Daniel Ishiro Ogata was born in Stockton, California in 1919. After the bombing of Pearl Harbor, he recalls his father saying, stupid Japanese, they shouldn't have done that. 
Despite the family's patriotic loyalty, the U.S. government moved them to a home detention center in Death Valley. When they learned that they would be moved to a rural camp in Arkansas, rumors of mosquitoes as large as sparrows haunted them on their cross-country journey. While the Ogatas were away from home, their home was ransacked and their business destroyed. Daniel Ogata remembers the train car pulling into the camp that had 36 barracks and was told that the barbed wire and the armed sentries were there for their protection, even though they were in the middle of seemingly nowhere, and the guards pointed their guns into the camp and not away from the camp. After several years in 1944, Ogata received $25 and a one-way ticket to Chicago. Although he really couldn't be trusted, he was capable of work and therefore allowed out of the camp to fulfill a desperate shortage of labor. He found work assembling explosives. Among the ethnic hierarchies at the time, a man of Japanese descent ranked among the lowest of the low. Not even an African-American need risk his job or his life working in a munitions plant. Ogata's life, though, was deemed expendable, and no one would care if he was blown up. Baptized in the Presbyterian Church and attentive to his faith, he tried with some of his Japanese friends to find a church that would allow them to worship near their Southside apartment. At every sanctuary door, though, ushers would claim there is no room despite a fistful of bulletins and obviously empty pews. Eventually, Ogata and his friends made it to Fourth Presbyterian Church, and on a Sunday morning, they were welcomed and seated in the pew rented by Cyrus McCormick. This was back before stewardship pledges funded churches, and the way in which a church raised money and funded their operation was to rent pews. You paid more for a really desirable pew, so the Cyrus McCormick pew would be about where the peep grasses are sitting. That's a plum spot. Everybody would see it. And that's where Daniel Ogata got to sit. Sympathetic to their desire to worship, Fourth Church's senior pastor, the Reverend Dr. Harrison Ray Anderson, invited the Japanese visitors to return in the afternoons, and they could worship in their own language in one of the church's chapels. Legend has it that Anderson held a session meeting, which is the equivalent to our Board of Trustees meeting, and he closed the doors, and no one was allowed to leave until there was absolute unanimous agreement that everyone on the session supported this decision. Anderson also had to pledge his personal responsibility to the FBI that nothing would happen under his watch and that he was always responsible. Neighbors of the church thought the Japanese presence was unacceptable and would mob. They stood ready to throw rocks at the entrance to the chapel. And in response, Anderson would walk out to the sidewalk with his full robe and hood, and he would stand there offering personal protection to anyone who tried to think otherwise. After the war, Ogata completed an undergraduate and then a graduate degree, all feeling God's call to do something with his life. Then he was ordained as a minister in the Presbyterian Church. And for 56 years until his death, the Reverend Daniel Ogata served congregations in Illinois and Iowa. He preached grace and forgiveness. He proclaimed the word of God. He ministered to people like those who had thought he was expendable human flesh. And at his memorial service, all donations were to be sent to McCormick Seminary. 
in this sermon series of Christmas hymns that teach our closing hymn is layered and layered with meaning for us. Richard Vaughn Williams discovered this lovely old English tune at a pub in the English village of Kingsfold in Sussex, England. That is how many of our hymns come to us from drinking songs. It was originally a ballad that told the story of a young woman's brutal murder. When he became the editor of the English hymnal in 1905, he took that beautiful tune and to it he put some very polite words that we've been singing ever since then. In our hymnal, there are three hymns set to the King's Fold tune. It's something you will recognize. Catherine Galloway, a minister in the Church of Scotland, wrote the lyrics, quote, when out of poverty is born, which is the beginning of our hymn, and she set it to the tune of Kingsfold in 2005. Galloway's lyrics take this charming tune and with it tells the bare truth as the gospel writer of Luke did 20 centuries ago. To receive good news means climbing down or falling down off of some lofty place. At the level ground of the manger, we meet those that we would have never invited to our homes, only to realize that God brought them there first. In the grace of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. At the cradle, all are beloved and all belong. When we've been at that low ground of the cradle, that's when we can join the shepherd chorus and tell the good news that everyone is welcomed, that love came down for all. May it be so, my friends. Amen.